Well, what's good, Rocky Peak? It is good to be with you once again this weekend. And if you're joining us for the very first time, special welcome to you. Welcome to Rocky Peak. My name is Dre. I'm one of the teachers pastors here. And by the way, special shout out to the home churches out there. If you're out there together with a group of people in a backyard or a living room, make some noise. I can hear you through the camera. It's magic. We're going to go into our uh, time of teaching. But before we do, there's one thing I want to just make you aware of. And that's at the very end of this month, the weekend of October. October 31st and November 1st. Michael is going to be teaching a special standalone message called Thriving in Babylon. And really the heart of this message has to do with the upcoming election. That we are facing one of the most important elections in our lifetimes, if not the most important one. And we are definitely caught up in a wave of uh, argument, emotion, division. And so really this message is an opportunity for us as a church to stop and to go to the word and ask as we go towards this election and whatever comes out of the election, what is the posture of our heart? What does the Lord want us to do internally to prepare ourselves for his kingdom to expand regardless of who wins on that Tuesday? And so that's going to be that final weekend and that final weekend of this month. And that Sunday on November 1st, that evening, we're going to be hosting a 24 hours of prayer here on our campus that's going to end that Monday night. And it's going to end with an on-campus outdoor encounter worship service where we get to gather through those 24 hours and encounter as a church to stand in the gap for our nation, for our communities, and for our own heart. And so we're going to have more details about that in uh, the weeks to come, but I wanted to get at least those dates there on your radar. So we're going to go into our time of teachings. I hope you've got your Bibles and your note sheets ready. I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right in. Jesus, we've been going through this series of what it means to be fully equipped with the armor of God. I want to stop and just focus us on this, that it's not about being equipped with our armor, but with yours. And so Jesus, we want to approach you this weekend with humility. We want to approach you this weekend with trust. We want to approach you this weekend with a willingness to listen and follow. Jesus, ultimately, we approach you this weekend and ask you, arm us for battle Put your armor on us. Give us your weapons so that we can fight your way in a way that brings life and advances your kingdom. And so we thank you that we get to open up your word, which is living and active. As I often pray, Jesus, as the communicator, may I become less and may you, Jesus, our King and Lord and Savior, become more and more this weekend. And it's in your name. We all said, wherever we're at, amen. Well, this week in Rocky Peak, we're going to continue this series that we've been in for a good amount of time now called The Resurrected King, Spiritual Warfare and Times and Challenge. And so what we've been doing throughout this series is that we've been discussing this truth that as followers of Jesus, when we give our lives to Jesus, we step over a line into a brand new level of spiritual warfare. And we've been learning that spiritual warfare is not an occasional event in our lives, but it really goes to the heart and soul of what it means to be a Christ follower. And so our key passage throughout the majority of this series has been in Ephesians chapter 6. 
6. And in it, the Apostle Paul writes about arming ourselves with what's called the armor of God. And the heart, again, and the vision behind this series is that when it comes to spiritual warfare, we as Christ followers tap into the power of the resurrected King Jesus by putting on God's full armor. And that armor equips us to not only take our stand in our spiritual battles, but it equips us to win the spiritual battles that we face in each of our individual lives. And so throughout this series, as we've been going through each piece of the armor, if you're new to Rocky Peak, if you missed one of these messages, if you just need a refresher, they're all there on our YouTube channel. I want to invite you to check them out when you get the opportunity. But today, as we're going to continue to the next piece, what I want to do is I want to ask you to open up your Bibles, turn them on, and I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 6 with me. And if you don't happen to have a Bible handy, I wrote it out there at the top of your note sheets. And so let's read a couple of verses together, and wherever it is you're watching from this weekend, I want to invite you to read these verses out loud with me. And so let's read verses 10 and 11 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And he goes on to remind us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is a supernatural battle. And then for us today, let's jump to verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation, that's the piece of the armor that Michael unpacked last week, and for us today, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Would you underline that? And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so the topic on the table this weekend is the sword of the Spirit. And immediately we see something pretty extraordinary, that this is the only offensive weapon that is given to us when it comes to the armor of God. And so far as Paul has described these pieces of armor, there's been a parallel for his initial readers to Roman soldiers and what was common in the armor they saw in Roman soldiers at, their, at that time. But when it comes to the offensive weapon, this is now a contrast to how Roman soldiers prepared themselves for battle, because Roman soldiers did have a sword, but that was one of many weapons that they armed themselves with when they went to battle. A typical Roman soldier would have a sword, sometimes two swords. They would usually carry one or two javelin or spears and another dagger of some kind, something small, somewhere else on their persons. But what we're going to see as we unpack this passage today is that this is the only offensive weapon that we are given because when it comes to spiritual warfare, it is the the only offensive weapon that we need. And so just as we've been doing with every piece of the armor, it's essential that we look at the word carefully and gain a clear understanding of what the weapon is and how we are to use this piece of armor because that's going to have a significant impact on how you and I see and approach the spiritual battles in our lives. And even though it may seem like just half a verse, there's actually a lot there in the description of what the sword of the Spirit is and how we're to use it. In fact, there's three core components components of the sword of the spirit. I call it an epic trilogy of what it means to understand the sword of the spirit. And so I want to unpack that here with our in our time together. So if you're following along in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Spiritual Warfare, the Sword of the Spirit. 
And so there's some space there for you to be able to write down some notes. And so as we begin this epic trilogy, as I call it, the first thing that we need to understand is we need to understand the type of sword that Paul is describing. Now, when you picture a sword, what do you picture? See, when I picture a sword, for many years as I read through this passage, I always pictured a long sword, kind of like something that medieval knights would carry. But what's really fascinating is that when we go to the Greek, that's not the type of word, a sword that the Greek is explaining. What the Greek, the original language the New Testament was written in, is telling us is that this is not a long sword, but it is a short sword. In fact, this is likely what was called a Roman gladius. And you're going to see a picture of an actual one coming up on your screens right now. Now, this was a, sh a sharp, double-edged sword that may have been about a foot and a half in length. But not only do we get, want to build a visual, but through that, we want to understand what it was designed to do. Because a Roman short sword was very, fame, was very famous in the ancient world. Because it was short, it was designed specifically for face-to-face -face combat. To fight with a short sword, meaning you were getting up close and personal with whoever your enemy was. But also, a Roman short sword was not designed for a long, drawn-out fight. It was designed to be an incredibly effective and efficient weapon, meaning one thrust. It was famously known that in the ancient world, all it would take is one thrust from a Roman short sword in the abdomen or especially in the heart to aim to end the fight. So this was meant to be an effective kill shot. So with this first part, what does this tell us about what it means to take the sword of the spirit when it comes to spiritual warfare? It means that the sword of the spirit is meant to be an offensive weapon. It means that we are being equipped to advance on the enemy, that we are being equipped by God to get face to face with the enemy. Now I realize as I say that, that can feel intimidating, can't it? To go face to face in a spiritual battle. But the beauty of that is the power behind that sword. And so that leads us to the next thing I wanna break down, is that if you look back at verse 17, the sword of the spirit, notice that it is not our sword. But what Paul is clearly telling us is that this sword belongs to God. And so what God is doing is he is entrusting his sword to us and entrusting us to fight with his sword and his power. You know, it makes me think, when I was a kid, I became enamored with the legends of King Arthur, those fables and myths. And there are many variations on the Arthurian legends. But one of the key aspects of the Arthur story is the mystical sword Excalibur. And in one of the stories, the origin of Excalibur is that this sword came from a mythical place called the Isle of Avalon. It was bestowed to Arthur by a sorceress called the Lady of the Lake. And as Arthur went into battle with Excalibur, that sword represented a power greater than the individual that wielded it. Now the Arthur legends are just that. They're legends and they're fables. 
But I use that as an illustration that this, what Paul wrote long before the Arthurian legends is the truth that God speaks to us. That he entrusts us and equips us with his sword. And because it is the sword of the spirit rather than it being our sword, it wields the power of the resurrected King Jesus. A power greater than the individuals that wield it. And with that, That leads me to the third part of what the sword is, and that's the source of its power. And again, if you look back at verse 17, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now this Greek word that we've translated to word is the word rima, and specifically this word is talking about a declaration or a proclamation, often oral, from the written word of God. In other words, this word that's been translated, this Greek is is talking about what's called the gospel. So Paul is saying that the power of the sword of the spirit comes from the gospel, the big picture story that all of scripture is saying, is declaring, and is pointing to. And sometimes in church circles, sometimes in religious circles, sometimes if you're a long-time Christ follower, that word, even that concept, can start to become numb because we tend to hear it a lot. Gospel, 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 and we need to stop and take a step back and remember the magnitude of what the gospel is. See, the gospel isn't simply a story or a message. The gospel is the truth of King Jesus. The gospel is how God, as a brilliant and beautiful creator, created the human race to live under an epic vision and purpose that he has for us. That we, as the human race, lost the ability to live under God's epic vision because of choosing sin and rebellion and treason. And because of our sin, we were now separated from God and his presence and the the purpose we were created to live in. Yet, God, in his great love and mercy, still loved an undeserving humanity. And so he sent his son, Jesus, who lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, who died under the weight of our sin, died the penalty that I deserve, and three days later who rose again and through his resurrection, he conquered and defeated for all time the enemy and the kingdom of darkness. And through his resurrection, we as a fallen humanity now experience new life because of King Jesus. That is the gospel and that is the power in the sword that God is entrusting us when it comes to spiritual warfare. For you and I to wield the sword of the spirit, that means that we are being entrusted to wield the message, the truth, the power that Jesus brings life where there was once death. I love how it's put there in your note sheet from the author of Hebrews. He puts that the word of God is alive and active. Would you underline that? Alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirits, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so 
what is meant by it judges. It means that King Jesus has authority over our hearts, but in that, King Jesus has authority to bring life into our hearts, to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts, meaning that when the word of God, when his sword pierces our hearts, King Jesus brings with it a transformation, an authority that drives out the enemy, that defeats sin and the darkness and strongholds that have taken root in our heart, and he brings new life. God's word cuts straight to the heart and it transforms everything in its path. And so this is our weapon in warfare. And the enemy knows he is defeated by the sword of God. And so the enemy knows he has nothing that can stand up to the power of the sword. And so how the enemy chooses to fight against us is to deceive us, is to trick us to see the sword of the spirit as less than what it is to minimize its power, to minimize its authority in our life, let alone its authority in the world around us. And so Rocky Peak, how do we fight back? Well, we fight back against this deception by taking the sword of the spirit and going to King Jesus himself and saying, train me to use your sword. And so as we leave our passage in Ephesians, that's what we're gonna spend the rest of our time doing. We're gonna come to Jesus and out of this passage in Ephesians 6, there are two essential truths about what it means to wield the sword of the spirit that I wanna unpack with you. So there on your note sheet, you've got a section titled that, Wielding His Sword, Two Essential Truths. And your first fill-in is this. Jesus' sword, the sword of the spirit, pierces hearts with new life. Jesus' sword, the sword of the spirit, pierces hearts with new life. And so to be equipped with the armor of God, to wield the sword of the spirit means that we are fighting with the life that King Jesus brings. And that is a clear contrast to how the enemy in the kingdom of darkness fights. See, we've talked about this often throughout this series, that the enemy fights with death. If you remember several weeks ago, if you were with us, Michael looked at John 10.10, which says that the enemy has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that is how the enemy fights. That's what all of his tactics, the ultimate goal of everything he does. And there are times in which he goes goes on a full frontal assault with those three weapons to steal, to kill, and destroy. But there are also times in which the enemy is very subtle about how he fights with death. If he's not going in a full frontal assault, What he wants to do is he wants to fight through deception in a way that seems good, that sounds good, but ultimately is leading us to death and destruction itself. And so there's one key example of this that I want to unpack with you is that when it comes to fighting in our culture, when it comes to fighting in our lives, we are called to fight. Christ followers, we are fighters. We have been built to fight. We are being equipped to fight. Whoever you are, however long you've been a Christ follower, God 
God is empowering you to fight and the enemy knows this. And so what the enemy is looking to do, he's looking to deceive us. Not that you aren't a fighter, but he's trying to deceive how you fight. See, a key tactic of the enemy is that he tries to get us to fight for good things, moral things, godly things, but, in, but by using his methods, death and destruction. And we see this in our world, don't we? That our world fights with anger and hatred that our world fights with devaluing and minimizing one's humanity, that our world fights with threats and violence and disunity, and that's the work of the enemy. But we also see this in the communities of those that call ourselves Christians, that we fight for the right things, but we fight in ways that bring death and destruction rather than life and hope. We use words and actions that devalue and hurt, that threaten, we bring violence at times. And that's the enemy minimizing God's work in our lives and deceiving us because if we fight like him, then we begin to resemble him and all that he stands for. And this is true not just in our external fights with one another or with people outside the church, but this is true in our internal battles, when it comes to our own thought lives, when it comes to the fear and the worry that's in our hearts. Often the enemy will equip us to fight with destruction against ourselves. If you ever find yourself wanting to do good, wanting to change a bad habit or thought process internally, but you find yourself telling yourself over and over again that nothing changes because you're stupid or you're not strong enough or you're not Christian enough or God doesn't care about you. That's the enemy trying to tempt you to fight like he does because that leads to destruction. And so the enemy fights with death. And so again, what do we learn about the sword of the spirit? that Jesus' sword equips us as Christ followers to fight with new life. Again, understand, rest, sit in the power of what it means that the sword of the Spirit is empowered by the gospel of Jesus, that when Jesus walked out of that tomb, life defeated the enemy. When Jesus rose again, life toppled the walls of sin, of darkness, of death itself. It was resurrection that once and for all defeated the enemy, and it's resurrection that restores our hearts to brand new life. When someone is pierced by the word of God right in the heart, King Jesus now declares to the enemy, you no longer have any claim on this person. They're mine and they will experience my new life. I love how Paul points out this contrast earlier in Ephesians in chapter two. It's not there in your note sheet, but the beginning of chapter two, he says that as for you, before Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions. 
And understand the intentional language here. Paul doesn't say you were sick, you were in a bad place. Paul doesn't even say you were dying. He was saying that before Jesus, we were dead and part of the kingdom of darkness. But he goes on to say that because of Jesus, is his authority and power has made us alive. We were pierced by the sword of the Spirit in our hearts first. And through that, the enemy was uprooted and defeated, and we experienced a brand new life. And the entirety of Scripture comes with that authority. Rocky Peak, if you're familiar with me as a teacher, you've heard me say many times that Scripture is far more than simply ink on a page or words on a screen, but scripture is the voice of our king speaking directly to us. There in your note sheet from Revelation chapter one, Revelation, the final book in our Bible, it describes Jesus in this way. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword His, Jesus' face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And this is one of several descriptions of Jesus in Revelation, but describing him as the powerful king of kings that he is now, that, that his resurrection crown, that he now is. And so again, why that is so important is that when we wield the sword of the spirit, we need to remember that we are wielding the power and the authority of King Jesus. And through his power and authority, we wield the sword for Jesus to bring not death, but life when it comes to our spiritual battles. It takes absolutely no strength to steal, kill, and destroy. It takes the power of Jesus and his authority that he entrusts us with through the sword to bring life. And so we wield his sword not to kill, not to strike down, not to destroy, because Jesus has already done that. We wield his sword in the hope that others would experience the resurrected king and the life he brings just as we have. And with that, if we are going to wield his sword and to wield it well, Rocky Peak, It has to start with us. We cannot wield the sword of the spirit. We cannot be fully equipped in the armor of God for our spiritual battles if we are not a people who are being pierced at the core of our being, who are not having their hearts pierced by the word of God first. And hear me, Those of you that are Christ followers, that's how your journey with Jesus began, is that he pierced you with his word straight in the heart and it transformed you. But as Christ followers, we we are not meant to be pierced once, but regularly, because as long as we are on this side of heaven, we remain imperfect. And as long as we remain imperfect, 
There will always be areas of our heart in which we need the king to speak new life and resurrection into it. And so this is something deeper. To be a pierced person means something deeper than being in what I call proximity to the word of God. It means something deeper than having a Bible or going to church and listening to a message, but it means intentionally developing a rhythm in which one-on-one we go to the word and we allow the voice of our King Jesus to speak, pierce, and transform us right in our hearts. And when he breathes that new life into us, it will overflow so that we can now take it out into our battles and fight with the life Jesus gives. You know, later in the New Testament, in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, he describes scripture, the word of God, as being God-breathed. And I love that because when his word pierces our hearts, that's what the king is doing, is he is breathing new life into us. I've said this before, Rocky Peak, and I'll likely say this again many, many times that the enemy knows how dangerous God's word is to him. And he will fight vehemently to keep you and I as far away from scripture as possible. And he will fight vehemently because he knows that the life found in the word of God has utterly and totally defeated him. And he wants to keep us away from Jesus' victory. And so we fight by going to the word. We become a pierced people by going straight to his voice. Let me give you a couple of examples. There's some of us right now that where our hearts need life is in the area of how we see God. That for whatever reason right now, we see a small God. We feel a distant God. We wonder, is he even there? Does he even care? And it's when we go to the word and we experience and encounter a massive, a beautiful, a all-powerful, and most importantly, a present God in which his word speaks life into our hearts. There's many of us watching this weekend that our hearts are dealing with suffering for multitudes of reason, but prolonged suffering. Or our hearts are dealing with fear or confusion, or anger, or loss, or despair. And what will happen is when we go to the word of God, he will pierce our hearts in those areas and bring life where there was fear. Bring peace and calm where there's anger. Bring comfort where there is suffering. Bring power where there is weakness. There's some of us that where our hearts need life is in the area of our purpose. We wonder, what what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be a part of God's kingdom? What am I supposed to do with my life? Or how am I supposed to serve God? Am I even equipped? Am I strong enough or good enough? 
And it's when we go to God's word that through scripture he pierces our hearts and show us the Christ follower, you were created with a purpose, you were created with an, to live in God's epic vision that resurrection is the beginning of a new life of purpose that you have a unique wiring and you, Christ follower, whoever you are, but you that profess the name of Jesus, you have now been given the mission of being a partner in the kingdom of God. There's some of us this weekend that where our hearts need life is in an area of habitual sin, maybe an area of authenticity, of honesty and integrity, maybe an area of sexual sin, maybe an area of substance abuse, maybe an area of anger and violence. And it's you that as you go to the word of God, he will rebuke you. And through that rebuke, he will lead you to repentance. But understand that being rebuked by God's word, being led to repentance is not for us to live in despair, in guilt, but it's because it is through God's rebuke, it is through repentance that his word cuts straight through to our heart and it frees us, it topples the strongholds of the enemy and it breathes new life and freedom into us. And so as we regularly begin to experience life that the word of God brings when it pierces our individual hearts, it is that life that strengthens us. It is that life that trains us. It is that life that equips us to wield, to swing the sword of the spirit in our battles and to bring that hope in life to others around us. There in your note sheet, I love this Psalm from Psalm 119. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so what has the psalmist hidden in their heart? Life. And what does that life do? It strengthens me to not sin, meaning it strengthens me to withstand the attacks of the enemy, but it also strengthens me to advance and lead the charge against the enemy. So that's the first truth. The second truth there in your note sheet, the next villain, Wielding Jesus' sword or the sword of the spirit requires putting ours or our sword down. Wielding Jesus' sword requires putting ours down. We all have a sword, so to speak. Some of us have a literal sword, but in the terms of spiritual battle, we all have a metaphorical sword. And our sword is fighting in a way that makes sense to us. Our sword is fighting in a way that feels natural to us. And so to wield the sword of the spirit requires humility. And the way that I have often defined humility for us, Rocky Peak, is that humility is a joyful declaration of not just our words, but of our thoughts and of our emotions and our hearts. Humility is a declaration that Jesus is king and I am not. Jesus is king and I am not. 
And what's happening through that declaration is that we are learning to develop and grow in our trust in King Jesus. And when we develop and grow in our trust, we begin to be able to say Jesus is in control and trusting him to be in control is not dependent on me understanding what Jesus is up to or even it's not dependent on me agreeing with the way that Jesus wants to move forward. Now, I understand and this hits me at my core, Rocky, because maybe you can relate with me. This is hard, huh? It's one thing to trust Jesus when his way makes sense. It's one thing to trust Jesus when he wants to fight in a way that I agree with or that I understand or something that, yeah, that would have been my plan too. It is a completely different scenario. It is much more difficult to trust Jesus to take the sword of the spirit when the way he calls us to wield that sword makes no sense when it doesn't seem like it's the way we would win, when it doesn't seem like it would advance anything, when it doesn't feel natural. It is in those times when we experience an attack from the enemy, when the enemy tempts us to throw down the sword of the spirit and to pull out our sword instead. Let me give you a couple of examples. See, when it comes to those people in our lives that we would consider our enemies, when it comes to the people that have hurt us deeply, the people that want to make life difficult for us, whatever that may be, the people that have stung us and pierced us deeply, when it comes to those people and we want to fight with anger, when it comes to those people or groups that we frankly want to punch in the face, we look to the word of God and the word of God says, love them, pray for them, do good to them. And it's tempting to want to say, no thanks, and to draw our sword instead. What about in those situations in which we have been waiting for provision or deliverance or a type of relationship? And we go to God and we ask and we plead and God's response is, wait. Continue to wait, endure, have patience. And we face that temptation to go, no. And we want to draw our own sword and say, if you're not going to do this, then I will. What about those times in which we feel like all we do is worry and stress and fear and we try harder and harder to take control? And we go to God's word and God's word says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be afraid. And we sit there and go, God, I don't know about that because if I'm not anxious, if I'm not stressed, if I'm not afraid, then how is this gonna get solved? And we face the temptation to throw down the sword of the spirit and to draw our sword instead. But the problem with our sword is that no matter how much it makes sense to us, no matter how much we believe in what our sword can do, it is rooted in who we are as fallen human beings, meaning that our sword at its best will always be rooted in our very human limitations. And the deep problem with that is our battle is not against flesh and blood. A human sword will never have the power to defeat a supernatural enemy. 
Let me illustrate it this way. Several, several, several years ago, when my older brother was in college, he and a group of his friends, they went to one of those Halloween mazes, you know, where people pop out and scare you. And this was in Northridge, where the Kmart is now off Corbin. And I remember my brother telling me that they were waiting, they let you in in groups, and they were waiting to get in line. And in front of them, as part of their group, there was this family that had a young son, maybe about the age of my kids, about six, seven, or eight. And he was a personable young kid and began talking to my brother and his friends. And my brother said he was dressed like a pirate, had an adorable costume on. And so as they're talking, my brother asked him, he's like, hey, like, people are going to be scaring us in here. Are you nervous? And he said that the kid responded very confidently, no. And you know why? Because I have my sword. And if there's any danger or if there's any fear, I'm going to use my sword and I'm going to defend all of us. So they go, okay, great. Well, we're glad we have you. And he goes on to detail that they finally go in as a group. And this kid lasted five minutes before he needed to run out with his family. And what happened? He realized very quickly his sword was way outmatched. That's us. That's us. When we try to fight the spiritual battles with our swords, we are outmatched. We need something bigger than you and I. We need the sword of the Spirit. There in your note sheet, I put a section from Matthew chapter 16. Let me kind of set up the scene for you. A few verses earlier, Jesus is detailing how he will win the battle against the enemy. But in detailing that, he's telling his disciples that it's going to mean he has to suffer and die. But in that, he does say that he is going to rise again, but the disciples don't focus on that. They focus on the suffer and die piece. And so there in your note sheet, you see that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Would you underline that? Rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Okay, let's stop right there. I often say that I feel like we are so quick to judge Peter, but the more that we understand the context of Peter, the more we realize we are Peter. And let's emotionally connect with Peter in the situation here. Peter is pro-Jesus. Peter is pro the kingdom of Jesus. He believes in Jesus. Just a few verses earlier, he declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what is Peter doing here? Peter is hearing Jesus say, hey, to win, I need need to die. And that makes absolutely no sense. And before you and I get judgmental towards Peter, if we were there not knowing fully the end of the story like we do now, I don't think we would have responded any differently because that makes no sense, right? Messiahs don't die. So Peter says, no, let's not do it that way. Let's do it a way that will actually work. And Jesus continues, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And we often look at that and go, man, that sounds harsh. But again, Peter, Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. What he is saying to Peter, what he is saying to us is that when it comes to spiritual warfare, anything less than God's sword is going to fail. 
Anything less than God's sword is going to fail. And that is what the enemy desires, that we use our sword rather than the sword of the spirit, which has defeated him. And again, Jesus focuses us. You need to be concerned with the kingdom rather than just what makes sense to you when it comes to warfare. There in your note sheet, there's a lengthy but an incredible quote by Dr. Tony Evans, who's become a hero to me in the last several months. He says that one of the reasons so many of us are losing our battles is that we have turned to human resources, methods, and philosophies to try to do battle against someone who is not human. Paul didn't say, take up your sword. He said, take the sword of the spirit and do battle with it. Even with your best intentions, you cannot compete with an enemy who is fighting in a capacity you or I could never function in. The only way to defeat this enemy and walk in a life of victory is according to God's prescribed means. He goes on to say, it is simply because we have not believed in the power of the dagger that we don't see the enemy sliced and diced as he ought to be. There is so much power in the sword of the spirit that God gave it to us as the only piece of offensive weaponry in the entire armor. Maybe the sword is the only offensive piece in the collection because it is the only offensive piece necessary to fight our spiritual battles means that you and I need to put down our man-made swords we need to learn and trust in the sword of the spirit to bring life which has already defeated the enemy and so what I want to do as we wrap up our service is I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on this I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out and they're going to lead us in a final song. But what I want to do is I want you to reflect on the sword of the spirit. And specifically, I want you to reflect on how it brings life where there was once death. You know, I'm in a pretty awesome life group this session. And last weekend, one of the guys shared with us that the Lord is calling him that he's been focusing too much on the enemy in darkness and not enough on Jesus and the life he brings. And so his encouragement to us was let's focus on life rather than death. And so as we go into this time of worship, as we close out our time together, I wanna encourage you to do the same throughout this time. As we sing the song and celebrate of what Jesus has done in our hearts, let this be an opportunity for us to focus on life. Let that focus be what empowers us to throw down our swords to pick up his as we develop a one-on-one -on -one rhythm of being in his word and with his voice. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, your word brings life. Jesus, your word is what pierces our hearts with resurrection, not just once, but regularly. Jesus, it is your word that created everything we see that created us. It is your word and power that defeated sin, darkness, death, the enemy. Jesus, it is your word we are being entrusted with to fight. And so I pray that that would become our focus, that the word of God is the source of life. That as we develop a rhythm of being, of listening, of reading, of being in the presence of your word, it is the voice of our King breathing life 
into our weary hearts. It is the voice of our King empowering us to throw down our swords and to fight with His in life. And so as we sing the song, as we enter into this moment of reflection, speak. We are listening. We are your people and we are looking to be led. It is in your name, King Jesus, we all said, amen.